0: And welcome back to part two, points in Politics. Uh, we, are, uh, we have this evening uh, four poets in the room, Justin Million, Alicia Rabacha, uh, Esther Vincent, and Joelle Levesque. Another question I had was about voice appropriation. And let me give you some context. I have a poem that uses three voices. I haven't read it public for 10 years or more. I wrote it about 20 years ago. Uh, an omniscient government bureaucrat, a racist detention-centered guard, and a very angry First Nations youth. Now, like any other Ontario citizen, I have lots of experience listening to and reading statements by bureaucrats, so I know that voice. I used to work in the juvenile justice systems of Quebec and Alberta, so I can speak with a guard's voice, but I am not of First Nations heritage. I work with many First Nations uh, kids as a youth worker. I, I know some of their stories, but I don't have their experience. Now, I haven't read that poem in public for over 10 years. As a writer of settler stock, can I? Again, where do we as poets draw lines when we are reading in public?
1: So it's really interesting that you brought that specifically up, because I was just talking to Justin on the way here about oh. <laughs> <laughs> this <coughs> the story that I wrote and that was is, will be published, but I wrote it several years ago, and it was, the publisher agreed to publish it a couple of years ago, and so it's been sitting unpublished for some time, but when it comes out, it's gonna be, it's gonna look like I just wrote it to a lot of people who don't know all that background. Um, and in this story, I had written about, there was, there was a kind of group of indigenous people that, this is, I, I should say it's sci-fi, so it's like a fictional group of indigenous people, and in this fiction, I made that group kind of magical, and I feel really awful about it now. Now it feels super inappropriate, and there's—I almost want to say, don't publish this. But I'm a writer, and it's a bit of money, and so I'm probably not going to do that. But <laughs> I might—what I, what I might do is have more conversations like this, and even write an article about why I think what I did was not, was wrong. And at the time, I just didn't know, and I thought I was doing a good thing. I thought I was helping. I thought I was representing a culture. And I thought that was useful, but now I see that that, that a lot differently than I did then.
0: Yeah. So, oh.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so so how do we how do we parse that these days? I mean, I mean, I, I I'm sitting there. There are two males uh, three females in this room. Could one of the males, could I or Justin, write? in a female voice? Could I write about, well, my friend wrote this poem describing this this atrocity in Vietnam that included a a gang rape. Could I write about that? I think
1: inevitably, to be a writer, you're going to imagine other people's lives. Like you can't, if you're writing fiction in particular, there's no way you can avoid, like you have to make up other people. You have to fill, like populate the world that you're writing. And so, we
0: and we all know novelists who can write in the other gender brilliantly. Exactly. And yeah. others who you know, like Margaret Atwood's men used to not be so good. <laughs> now they're a lot better. <laughs>
1: yeah, so I think it's inev- inevitably uh, that it's inevitable um, for us to try and write other voices. We just have to. Sure.
0: Yes, there's uh coming over to the mic.
2: I have a little thing I can sort of inter- interject in here because I, I used to um, operate a reading series here in town. The to be uh, the Cooked and Eaten Reading Series, 10 years Jeez. of readings. And um, I would call readers to send in submissions, and I would review mostly their submissions, never their bio. And I would try to pick people who I thought were good. I would sometimes have a mind... To balance male and female writers, Mm -hmm. to try to represent people who were not white, for example, or who had different experiences of life, but it was not primary. And going over my old list, I was just really fortunate and, and a little bit conscious of it to make sure that I did have a fairly wide representation of people. And occasionally I would have the opportunity to have a conversation like this, who can use whose voice in writing. Yes. And the one thing, and of course you know, I'm just going to acknowledge that all of us in this room here happen to be white, we all look like we're pretty educated, sound like we're pretty educated, so we are all coming yeah. from one particular yeah. place in this discussion. Um, but as Alicia say says, it's like a writer is a writer, especially if you're writing fiction, you're going to have multiple characters, if you only write your own kind of character, not only will it be intensely boring, but it will be sort of, quote-unquote, whitewashed. And you are also missing out on the opportunity to represent the diversity of the world. But I think what is key is care. Uh. And making sure that if you are going to represent someone who is not you, particularly in terms of, say, race, sexuality, ability... Uh, cognitive uh, ability; those kinds of things is that not only do you know something about it, and or hopefully know someone or a few people who you have enough familiarity with that you are um, somebody uh, that you know that you admire, and that you write those characters in such a way that they are one hundred percent human, and that is their character traits that drive them, not their superficial classification. Right. right? So it's like I understand what you're saying, Alicia, about you feeling embarrassed about the fact that you'd created these magical indigenous people which is definitely an issue but it doesn't mean that there isn't a person out there who is indigenous who also feel themselves to be magical but that is what you would need to connect to in order to create a character like that that was both convincing and human and i think that's where we're at in terms of And I think this is one of the things that is, for me, has been both frustrating and amazing about this shift in our cultural understanding of each other and diversity is that we are all learning. And it's really important for us to keep learning. And for those of us who do tend to write, especially fiction, and represent other people is that we are learning how to do that in a way that is appropriate as opposed to appropriating that is careful and caring as opposed to usury that is human and humane as opposed to setting another group apart regardless of what that group is so I think it's not that you can't speak with somebody else's voice but you have to do so with care same way as if you were telling your brother's story your brother fell off his bike when he was six you were going to tell somebody the story about your brother falling off his bike when you were six you would do so with care to him Yes, and his story and you would probably also acknowledge that it was his story same thing with just about anybody else you're dealing with that's anyway that's my little two cents based on what I sort of learned over the course of Cooked and Eaton in the last few years of working with diverse writers (laughs) (laughs) right yeah
0: Does anyone have a poem? Anything jumping to mind? Thank you, Esther. That, uh...
3: um, ooh, This is like the worst time to read this after what Esther just said. But um, <laughs> uh, I think there is a point where, um, while this is a poem, I don't mention anyone's name because I'm trying to get at a certain subset of folks. Um, but talk about, you know, what type or... Um, what who are you allowed to talk about what are you allowed to talk about like i mean this is this is a poem about donald trump this is a poem about um stereotypical trump supporters um and i guess this would i mean we need another hour to dissect um you know the the theme tonight or par, partial theme tonight was you know when to read something there there is also a time to read something to galvanize folks um or to call something out. Um, but again, I, I, this is a poem that I, I tend not to read in readings, um, just because it's it's difficult and it's angry. Um, but I, I feel like, again, going back to the kind of afterlife uh, TV show thing I was talking about earlier, if we're not also writing about the really difficult, painful, uh, mean stuff or possibly being mean in our own stuff, um, then I think we're kind of also stepping, tiptoeing around times when we get angry, um, times when we want to tear something down. Um, So I'll read this, for good or ill. Uh, And it's based on a tweet from Donald Trump. Uh, The tweet is actually the last five lines, begins with I, just so you know, those are not my words. And again this is also and again uh, we could have a no whole other program on the difference between reading something uh and and uh, uh you know as a reader reading something on the page or hearing something uh which can make for a totally different reading uh and I will use some harsh language here, so I will give a content wording um but again I'm using harsh language in the hopes that people might see um something difficult um You know, the type of people that we might be dealing with, and maybe some people are quite immovable. Uh, This is called Tweeter and the Monkey Men. (laughs) He woke, unwrapped his food, and ate it, and no one refuted him. He made instant coffee for the road in styrofoam and no one refuted him. He paid for gas. He told the attendant he missed the ashtray days and no one refuted him. He checked his mirrors. He told his merry bobblehead the truth and she did not refute him. He roamed the dial for talk, rotating opinions so no one refuted him. He was at ease at crime scenes. No authorities refuted him. He maintained a relationship with that particular Christ who hates fags, and still no one refuted him. He was a free man. When he wanted to buy a lot of guns, he was sold a lot. No one refuted him. He was primal, he thought, and he thought that when you identify with history, you identify with your betters. He thought that powerful thought of no one refuting him. He was homunculus americanus, meaning he was moved to counter violently, though no one had refuted him. He proposed meeting another he in a diner to make a plan, like in a movie, and he did not refute him. He and he assured themselves that he and he were as good old as ever was, assured by the world as God, who was supposedly the world, did not see fit to move the world to refute or even punch out him and him. He and he and he rode all that plan and power to the new mosque. He and he with he could enter anywhere, anyone. No gaps west refuted him and him with him. He was him with proof, on fire with cold support, until even his command could not refute him or him or their version of him. He and he sang their hymn. I have the absolute right to pardon myself. But why would I do that when I have done nothing wrong? Um, so, again, that poem came out of that tweet. I have the absolute right to pardon myself, but why would I do that when I have done nothing wrong? Yes. So then the I guess the task given to me was to write something about folks who are going to live that. Um, because I think a lot of folks might just, oh, well, it's, it's something to write off something that Trump just threw out on Twitter, um, but I was actually just i was talking to Alicia about this today, that the gentleman who invented the retweet uh, on Twitter has actually said it's one of his biggest regrets um, be- <laughs> because too- it, it, it essentially just made for an extremely kind of easy, streamlined, vitriolic politics where you can look at a tweet and then all of a sudden share it as if it's your own point of view, but it's so easy that you don't have to be discerning. You don't have to have an opinion. You can just throw that out there as being a subset of your opinions. And if somebody questions you want it, you just say, well, I didn't think about it too much. I just retweeted it. Sorry. Right. Um, it, it's a certain type of invincibility of morals that is absurd. And um, so I think every now and then there does need to be a certain – writers and artists, not just writers, artists, have to take people to task on these kinds of opinions. Um, Because, again, if we are just skirting all the issues in the hopes that, you know, the right kind of uh, conflated metaphor will just hit, uh, it won't work. Um, Like I'm I'm thinking of, like I looked at again today, I was just reminded of it today, given the theme. Uh, I believe it's Patricia Lockwood who wrote The Rape Joke. Um, One of the one of the I would argue one of the biggest poems in terms of virality. Um, But how would that poem be received in a a reading in in public as opposed to its online reception, which was gigantic? Hmm. Um, And that poem needs to be heard. And it's extremely difficult to read and extremely difficult to, again, read in person. Um, So, again, that's a whole other hour in terms of (laughs) print versus, you know, hearing it. Um, because again, if I had, if I didn't have the ability to give context in this poem, those last lines might be read as uh, a, a confirmation of the type of racism that I'm yeah. and, and sexism and yeah. and everything else that I'm detailing here.
0: Esther, something you said that's still resonating for me is that notion of we can take on other voices if we care and respect them and treat them with uh, and the example that came to mind was uh, if anyone knows the uh, work of Heather O'Neill, Montreal novelist she's brilliant, she wrote this book called The Girl Called Saturday Night where she takes on the persona of a teenage Quebecoise, a teenage francophone and I grew up in Montreal. I I swear this book was written by a francophone. It wasn't. It was written by Heather O'Neill. And she did, and I I, I had a reading. I I asked her about that, and she said lots. She showed the rough drafts of this novel to many francophone writers, and and, and she got validation. Yeah, you've got it. That's what a girl, 15, broken home, that's what she'd be thinking. You know, a bit of a hellraiser, she'd say that. You know, and she got
2: it right but terrific amount of care. Esther? Yeah, I think, and that's an important point, and I sort of want to do a little addition to what I just had just said because I didn't realize that I left uh, something very important out of what I was saying Mm -hmm. is the fact that there are lots of people who are not white, who are writing poetry, who (laughs) have their own stories to tell, (laughs) and we should be listening to them as well. So that's part of it. So, like, what you're saying is that this author sought out reflections, advice, understanding from people who would be identifying better perhaps with the characters that she's creating. And I think that's in some ways, depending on the situation, if it is a very complex situation, if it is something that is touching on something sensitive, for example, really good idea to ask the people, who are maybe closer representations to what it is that you are trying to yes. represent yes. ask for feedback get somebody to read for you. pay them very well to do so. <laughs> also yeah, right, do not right. ask somebody for free to excuse you <laughs> yeah. for being a white person writing a person of color story right. um, for free right? right pay them well say can you be my editor this feels sensitive I want to know I'm not being a bonehead. Can right. you help me out here And I think that is a thing that's a thing you can do I think that's happening more and more content editors, particular, right. um, um, you know, diversity editors. Sometimes I think they even get called. Um, so that is, I think, an important thing. And I think what you said there is, is kind of the key. It's like if you don't know, there's a good chance you might be wrong. So check it out. <laughs> yes. Right? Don't just go blithely going, well, you know, I should be able to say anything about anybody because that's what writing is. <laughs> Trust your gut. If you think maybe what you're saying is not correct. Ask around, find someone to read it, or leave it out. And, of course, always make space for people who have their own stories to tell their own. Great. We're winding down here. Any uh, short poems left? Any? I
0: don't know how relevant they are. are. Poems are relevant.
2: (laughs) Poems are always relevant.
0: Okay, this is Alicia.
1: Well, maybe to go back to what we were talking about when we were joking about context and providing context... Um, I have this one poem that appeared in my recent chapbook, Too Much Nothing. Um, and I've, I'm writing a longer work based on the same several beginning poems. Um, and this one poem in the new manuscript has like completely recontextualized, like it has a totally different meaning than it did in the first book, but I haven't changed a word. It's the exact same poem, but it now resonates completely differently. Uh, So I might actually just read... A couple poems because it needs context. (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah. Sixty-one women in space. There is no list of the world's four hundred and seventy-two male astronauts because men are just people. And so I should say, I should provide even more context and say that I'm writing a collection of poems that's uh, inspired by Roberta Bonder, uh, and she's Canada's first woman in space, the world's first neurologist in space. Um, so I write a lot about space, and this is kind of a feminist collection, so there's a lot of that at play. Um, so this next poem, when I've placed it in the context of these other feminist poems, has really changed what it's about. Um, so this is Snake Fence. Here, down the seven, the split rails are self-supporting, with few tools and no nails, fencing in the trees they're made of, timber interlocking to hold itself up, lack and plenty determining the landscape. And so that lack and plenty didn't, like, really have... It was all about the trees, originally. Like, it was kind of a literal poem. It was about snake fences and the, the Ontario landscape, because a lot of the book is about me as well as roberta bonder um and so i'm drawing together outer space and the rural space um so it was just about that it was pretty a pretty simple poem um but in the context of the feminist poems lack and plenty determining the landscape is about women in stem and how there's not enough of them um it's about men being kind of the bigger dominant force in that field um so it's completely a completely new poem just based on where i've placed it
0: interesting and with that, well, thank you so much, uh, Justin, Alicia, Esther, and Joelle, for coming in. This has been the our thirteenth program of 2019 our sixth show of the summer season here in Trent Radio. Please join us in two weeks on Thursday, August fifteenth, at 92.7 FM on your dial. Our political panel of Sylvia Sutherland, Tim Etherington, uh, Donald Fraser, and Alisa Paxton will delve into the federal election as well as look at Peterborough's response to our now very visible homeless problem. And we will look at how Doug Ford is doing in his summer witness protection program. So if you miss us here on the radio, you can always download the show as two 30-minute podcasts the next day at uh, podcasters.ca. Any feedback, please comment on the podcast website I just mentioned, or just send me a note at bill.templeman at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Until August 15th, this is Bill Templeman.